This is Graphic Interventions. Hello, I'm Harriet Atkinson, a historian of art and design and the host of this podcast series, Graphic Interventions. In each episode, I interview one maker about one thing they've made, a poster, a banner, a zine, to discover why that thing came about, what it meant then and how it resonates now. My focus in this series of interviews is on how political conversations are initiated, enlivened and made visible through the graphic form. In this episode, I met Susie Mackey, one of the founder members of Sea Red Women's Workshop, Britain's best-known and longest-lasting women's poster collective. Susie started by introducing herself and Sea Red. My name's Susie Mackey, and I'm one of the founder members of Sea Red Women's Workshop. We set up in 1974. Um, the collective was going till 1990. Three of us founded the collective, and by the end of 1990, there were, had been 46 different women going throughout the collective. So it was never really static. Right from the beginning, we had other people joining us. It was a thing you did because you loved it and you wanted and you felt passionate. Can you give us a sense of what Britain was like when you started Sea Red? I mean, we were talking 74, and people don't quite realise how bad it was then. You couldn't sell anything without a naked woman on a bonnet of a car. It was to combat this everyday sexism that was in adverts, articles, magazines, even the clothes you wore or the fashion you followed or everything. But also because we had all been to art school at the time and we were starting to become very involved in the women's movement, which again was burgeoning at that time, becoming more and more present, appealing to more and more different women. So how did things start? So we thought, well, how can we do this in a meaningful way? And we thought, well, what's what we do? We make posters, we print, we design. So we can do that. So we got our heads together and started off the collective with three. It grew to six within a month. And we were only limited by our premises, which were a dilapidated shop front that had its front window broken because they didn't like our display after about two weeks there. So then we went to a squat in South London, South London Women's Centre on Radnor Terrace in Vauxhall, which was tiny. And we put our posters up when we printed them on a little washing line. And then we found our final premises in Eyliffe Yard in Southwark, which was an old, I suppose, an old stables yard that was very trendified now, but very broken down and run down then. We had a tap and we had stairs because we were above but we didn't have a telephone put in for several years and I think when I'm explaining this to my daughters or my daughter's friends children they're going like well how did people make their orders you know how did they tell you what posters they wanted to sell um because we sold posters they, we said they wrote letters oh letters right and so they didn't ring up and order them or no no and then we wrapped up our posters in a Cardboard rolls that we used to get from East Street Market, which is a clothes market down the road. It was what all the material used to be wrapped around. And then we'd take them in our shopping trolley to the local post office and post them off. How did you work together? We all did a bit of everything, really. And that was, I think, the whole point of the collective was that we didn't want to get into somebody being the artist, somebody doing the admin, somebody preparing or, you know, changing the screens Everybody was part of doing the same thing. That was very important to us because we were really anti the idea of art with a capital A, which was very much what we'd been fed when we were at art school. 
What was the art world like at the time? In order to be an artist, you were usually male to start with, um, totally dedicated and obsessed with your work and very much about signed originals, particularly with prints, you know, copies that were precious and copies that were found later, all, all kinds of things like that. We just wanted to completely debunk and basically undermine that whole concept of an artist producing high quality materials that just sat in exhibitions. What was it like to be a woman at art school in the late 60s and early 70s? We were obviously all as women at art school. We hadn't had the best of time because of the, the innate sexism in the whole arena. Two were painters and myself, I was a graphic designer. So we were in slightly different points of view. It just felt that we were taught things, being taught things at art school that we, it was accepted we probably wouldn't use them because we might probably go on and get married and have children and not really need to bother our, our little heads with that kind of thing and the most disgustingly sexist tutors. But in a very pleasant art school environment I had, Prue's was slightly different, she was slightly earlier. But again, the whole thing was, you don't really need to bother too much about this. Just do, do your best, dear, do your best. So we were incensed by that as well. Why did you decide to form a collective? I think one of our male artist friends um, was very confused by the idea of the collective and he just kept asking, well, so who holds the pencil? Who holds the pencil when you, who does the drawing? Who does the design? And couldn't understand that we all worked on the design. Somebody would come with an idea. They might go and work it up or somebody else might go and work it up. They'd bring it back. It would be worked on by the group. And it was very much a collective effort. And that was our decision from the beginning, not to be three people in a collective, but to be the collective however many of the 46 different women were there. And that, I think, was quite annoying to the art world. It sounds a bit old hat now, really, doesn't it? But it was, for us, it was quite a novel idea to tackle it like that. And it also got up a few people's noses, which we quite liked as well. Who were you hoping to reach with your work? So basically, we started printing and selling posters at very, very reasonable rates. A lot was sent to left-wing bookshops, of which there were far more then than there are now, actually. But I suppose because they were so completely different to usual bookshops. And a lot of the bookshops now are big chains, but then you had things like News from Nowhere, from Liverpool, Centre Prize up in Hackney, all different kinds of places that we used to send our stuff off to, but we also sold to individual women. So somebody could contact us and say, can I have a copy of that poster? I just want to put it on my wall. Um, with the poster I'm going to talk about, uh, Right on Jane, we sold a lot of those to schools and to colleges, particularly colleges that taught teachers, teacher training colleges. So it was very much in our minds that that was quite a good way to go about things, to go into the minds of those who are going to be delivering lessons, as, as well as trying to encourage the the general public to think about sexism in books, children's books. Could we turn to the particular piece you've decided to talk about today, Right on Jane? Could you just say a bit more about how this came about? I was living in a collective household with the other founder and several other people of C-Red, Julia Franco, and her daughter had started going to nursery school, came home one day with these Ladybird Keywords Reading Scheme series. Now, I think people know them really well now because they've been morphed into quite hilarious spoofs books 
that are being sold all over the country in various different formats, but based on that, that idea of these are sort of reading improvement. The design of it was you have a picture, a very realistic picture, and then you have some text. And then underneath it, separately, you have keywords written that you can learn to recognize and repeat. But they were, when I say extremely sexist, they were so sexist, we were appalled. We thought, oh, well, we can just return these to the school and that'd be it. But then we thought, no, we want to make a poster. We also wanted to make a poster that was positive because quite a few of our posters describe the really dire situation for women in various different uh, parts of the world or domestic servitude, those kind of angles. So we wanted to do something about sexism in children's books, but in a way that would catch people's attention, make them laugh, but also question how, how come this has been going on for so long? We've done nothing about it. It was still in school. Uh, primary schools as reading aids you know books you get sent home with and in fact the design first appeared in one of our calendars we did three or four calendars in in the early 70s and um, right on jane was one of those in the 76 calendar in single color but we made it into a three color poster can you give us more of a sense of ladybird books for people who didn't grow up with them ladybird books the pictures were extremely realistically drawn colour-wise, etc. They weren't photos, but they were obviously constructed like photographs. We decided to do extremely different colours to that. So we did primary red, yellow, blue to basically counteract the, the realism, to make the drawing obviously a drawing, a line drawing. And the, the first three frames were traced from the book. They have the phrase and they have a little picture at the side and that's the, the split of the book. And keywords, obviously, are, you know, with the picture of I am helping mummy to dust, you know it's a little girl. And the key phrase is dust, dust. It's When you just read it cold, it's pretty horrific, really. I am helping to sweep the floor. Well, you know it's not Peter. It's obviously Jane. And the keywords are sweep, sweep. And then Peter helps daddy with the car and Jane helps mummy get the tea. Good girl, says mummy to Jane. You are a good girl to help me like this. Good, good girl. By this point, you're feeling slightly nauseous, basically. So in the last frame, we, we zoomed in, a bit like on a close-up in a film or a photograph, on Jane while she's helping Mommy to make the tea. But she's having a big think. You can tell because uh, of her expression on her face. And she thinks, stuff this. It's about time I got myself out of these sexist books and started giving girls... Uh, an example of all the other things we can do. And we thought right on, right on, Jane was the best, uh, the most key words to provide there. We, we even quite like the slightly off register printing on the yellow cardigan and the blue line. There's a bit of mismatching there. It was almost important to show this is, none of this is real, not the real Ladybird books or our poster, but it's about the ideas and it's about the sexism and the oppression of girls and young women that they promoted then. Um, it was a very early viewing of what we call the quizzical sea red eyebrow, which Jane has in her close-up. Now, I can't do it for you because I've got a heavy fringe, but it was very much, what's going on, frown. Um, and it, it comes up in a lot of our posters where you can see that the women we're trying to portray are thinking, are actually starting to challenge, in a way starting to believe that something that they could do could be the right thing to do. What was the wider conversation that was going on around this poster? 
in the, in the later 70s, early 80s, there were a lot of community-based voluntary sector groups, possibly with funding from the GLC, that looked particularly at sexism in books and racism in children's books, and not only strove to make people more aware of this, but also started producing writers and illustrators that could actually make books that were non-sexist, non-racist, and were positive. And it's strange when you think about it nowadays, because if you look at bookshops, they are quite multicultural in their form. And also, if it was a straightforward sexist book, it just wouldn't get printed nowadays, other than an oddity, a rarity. What was the response to Write on Jane? Um, it was one of our most popular posters, I have to say. I don't know if, I don't think people do it nowadays. People would put them up in their kitchens. It, they said it made them laugh, but it also made them think. And I think that's one of the things we went to. Humour was very important to us in, in a lot of our posters, just to engage with people. But we were very much against the kind of didactic patronising, you know, this is wrong and anything that is sexist is bad and this has you know, this must stop now kind of didactic rules, if you like. And we wanted to appeal to people's real selves. They're really funny and challenging. That was good because you're more likely to remember it than if you've just been told this is bad, this is, this is not good. I left in 82-3, but it was still a very popular poster then. I mean, we say popular by the number we sold, not because of us, but because of it was, you know, generally agreed children's books were in a pretty bad state um, in terms of sexist and as well as racist by omission, as well as promoting racist stereotypes, as well as stereotypes of, of, of being a girl or a young woman. That may be one area where things did slightly start to happen, particularly whilst there was still funding for, for those small groups. Where did the poster end up? We sent posters all over the world, and that was one that was quite popular in the States and Canada. And we had um, a few requests from China. We did, didn't know where things were going to come from, but we were quite impressed that we'd been found by these faraway countries. We didn't stop and go, oh, that's a great poster, let's stop for a while. It was always, you're pr printing one poster, you're working on another. How did you decide which causes, which issues, which solidarities to, to, to foster? Well, to start with, it was very much from our own personal experiences. In 74, we, we moved into our collective in, in South London, and at the same time we started Sea Red, we were also attending what were called then consciousness raising groups, women's consciousness raising groups, where we talked about things and shared stuff about our experiences of life, growing up in relationships and the way that women are just seen in the world at that time. And in terms of, you know, whether it's being whistled, whistled at on the street or whether it's being expected to do all the housework and have a full-time job and that not even being an issue of discussion, childcare the same. You know, it was very much of those very early issues in the women's movement that were the personal issues. We were given, well, we demanded, I guess, and we were given equal pay and the Sexual Discrimination Act. There's one of our posters that has a very cross, quizzical face. It's the one that's called Bite the Hand That Feeds You, and it just has a woman looking extremely cross with a shopping bag, and a big hand, and we use the classic stereotype of the symbolism of uh, sort of the boss's hand. 
So he had a, you could see his pinstripe suit um, and he might have had a little ring on his finger or whatever and the fat hand coming in and giving us sex discrimination at the Equal Pay Act. There was something, I think, about an education uh, act. But at the, what was falling out of the bottom was all the things like education, housing, sexual offences against women, all the things that just weren't being addressed. It's like, okay, be quiet now. You, you, you've done your thing um, as women. You've got Equal Pay Act, which isn't and still isn't actually a fact. We've changed these laws, these few laws, but, you know, so you can stop moaning now. There was always something always something to do and as we changed and as the women's movements changed and as different people came into the collective we started looking at issues of um, women in other countries and in other circumstances to our actual our own personal circumstances but very much based on the issues that were that were happening to those women so we did a, a poster about the women in Armagh jail the IRA women prisoners who, because they weren't classified as political prisoners, like their male counterparts were allowed to be classified as, they didn't get any favours or different status, which meant they could get more exercise, et cetera, et cetera, and they were treated differently. We put a lot of information on that poster because it was fairly shocking, you know, being locked up 23 hours a day, being denied basic sanitary protection when you had your periods, all kinds of humiliating things, but we wanted people to know about those. In the next part of the interview, we talk about the National Front's attack on the Sea Red offices and about where Sea Red drew inspiration. What really strikes me is how much Sea Red was able to see the connection between the women's struggle and other struggles, what we might now call an intersectional approach. Could you say a bit more about how this happened? We got quite involved through newer members in the collective, I'd say late 70s and 80s, uh, of um, our various black colleagues who were involved, obviously, in the fight against racism. So at that time, the National Front were very strong in a lot of the big cities. And we produced a poster called Don't Let Racism Divide Us, Fight the National Front. We did it in several formats, one was a hand-drawn format earlier before we got our darkroom, basically. So everything had to be hand-drawn. And then we did a, a photographic version of it as well. Also, those sold very well because they were very much of their time. The second version of it had actually the Lewisham demonstration um, where the National Front came to demonstrate and the anti-National Front offensive act. I mean, we were um, we were broken into at Sea Red after we made our National Front poster. And th they got in and pissed everywhere and broke stuff and the only thing they didn't do which was really good was set it on fire because it would have been a conflagration because all the inks were oil-based and they carved a little nf i don't know if you know the symbol for it was like an nf that adjoined together uh, as one symbol the pc whatever that came around to register our complaint and look he said well, I don't think we'll be even, we're really going to be able to find them, even though they did leave their initials on the door. And we said, that's not their initials. That's not their name. That stands for National Front. He was like, oh, oh, does it? I'm not sure about that. And it was, East, it was South East London, which was rife with National Front. We're just off East Street Market, which is one of the hotbeds of the National Front locally. And they didn't like our stuff. And they found us. And... They just gave a bit of punishment, basically. We're lucky nobody was there. 
and also that they didn't set it on fire. Well, being an old stable, there was no escape route, basically. So we had to have uh, rope ladders out the window and no other way out. And, you know, when you think about what some other groups have had to suffer, it's a bit, it's a bit nothing, it's a bit paltry. But we, we wanted to get under people's skin like that as well and to make the people who didn't agree with the National Front realise they were not alone and that it was a good thing to do is to fight the National Front and get together around racism as well as sexism. So we were quite involved in things that were going on at the time. Could you say a bit about why posters as opposed to any other medium? Somebody asked me that and I said, but like what? Like a painting? Well, only a few people would see that and we wouldn't be selling them. I mean, who would buy them? I don't even know. I think it was because they were very easy to do. To start with, we used to carry around screens and then what we were doing is painting resist on. We did a couple of paper stencils, but they were too, a bit too hit and miss. So we started using blue resist painting directly onto the screen, the areas we didn't want the ink to come through. And the thing with that is you can start off by doing some areas and then you can add once you've done one colour. It was the medium of protest at the time because obviously we'd known about Paris 68, which was quite a big thing. We even used some of the, the symbolism, you know, for capitalists or for factory. It had to have a roof like this. And it had to have a big chimney with a lot of smoke coming up. And there you go, you completely understood. Aside from the Atelier Populaire posters of 1968, where else did you look for inspiration? We quite liked some posters that we found uh, when we went to visit our American friends. I mean, there was a lot of music posters that were beautifully produced from San Francisco, etc. But a lot of that morphed into, well, posters from their women's movement, posters from the Black Power movement and from various other issues and collectives over there. What were the benefits of working in the way you did with the techniques that you were using? It was quick, it was easy. Well, you basically took the screen home with you blank, painted it out, took it back the next day, printed it. And we used to go to conferences, in fact, in the earlier 70s, the newly and exciting Women's Liberation Conferences. They were great. We'd all go up to, I don't know, Newcastle on a, on a bus, a coach, We'd get there and we'd sell the posters, and but we'd also do sessions where women could come and draw their own designs and print them. And we'd just make the screens there and then with them. So it had that immediacy. It was also, you know, you could print out 100 fairly quickly. And then you could also go fly posting as well, which we did quite a lot. But it was quick and it was easy. Paper, ink, frame and blue resist. So it wasn't for, it took a while to get the darkroom that we needed to make posters that had photographs in. But I like—I really like some of the early posters. It's almost 50 years since you started to make posters. What changed in terms of techniques and technologies during that time? What changed, obviously, is the medium. You know, it wasn't, not suddenly, but it wasn't the cheapest way to produce stuff. Because remember, when we were doing our posters, there was no offset life. That came in bit later. We were also very keen on the inks, the colours being very rich and strong, which you don't get with Lysa still, I don't think. So it's much better now, but in the early days it was dreadful. And, you know, all, all there was to sort of combat the posters was this sort of Romeo thing. I'm doing the round and round thing that you just had to produce these smudgy looking ink things that said where the next meeting or demonstration was going to be, but was never used for making uh, visual products. 
that were anything other than time, place, why the meeting's happening. When we started realizing that this is no longer the best or quickest way to produce radical material was when Offset Litho started really cranking up and getting to be a much better uh, representation and much more able to be produced thousands of posters rather than hundreds of posters. And that happened gradually through the 80s. But the onset of IT and the media and all of that was a little bit after our time of production because we packed up in 1990. It wasn't because we thought it was the only way to do posters was silkscreen printing. It was the quickest, easiest and cheapest way to get a, an image out from your head onto paper and out onto the streets or, you know, to some, I don't know, school or something like that. I mean, we did get quite often accused of making really depressing posters because we were illustrating what is going on or what we understood was going on in order to draw people's attention to it. We thought that was quite necessary. You know, you can't have a chuckle about everything. You know, people often ask us, well, you know, did you see red, did the idea really, did, did it really work? You know, I mean, what really has changed? It's not usually women that ask us that question. Was it worth it? Did it really work? What difference did it make? And I would say that our, our sort of premier ambition was not to make a lot of difference to the world. It was to um, encourage women to, to think and to act and to challenge stereotypes and repressive legislation and... Can you tell me a bit about the refugee women who joined the group and say something about the kinds of interests that they brought? We actually had uh, a Chilean refugee and a Colombian refugee join our collective when they came to England as refugees, uh, women, who were actually, you know, it's very different to what refugees are described as these days, but they came from a, a war-torn country and escaped and came to England as a refugee where they were welcomed. But they joined our collective separately and worked with us on posters. With the Latin American South, there's a lot of revolutionary um, images coming out of um, South Africa at the time as well, as well as Zimbabwe, which had just become Zimbabwe. So there was a lot of materials around, but they were very inspirational. They were very... Even some of them were kind of humorous, even though the subjects were so deadly serious in so many ways. Huge amount of life in them. They were large, they were very colourful, and the images were very dynamic. There was no two ways, no two ways about what they were talking about. You, you couldn't be confused Absolutely. at all. And we tried to get that thing with our posters as well. There wouldn't be people going, so what, what's that really about? We don't really understand. And I think we did okay for most of them, yeah. When we started off, we wanted to do everything way back in uh, 74. Um, we wanted to do a bit of photography, a bit of printing, a bit of this, all the visual stuff. But we realised very quickly that even though we were super women, we couldn't actually do any, everything. Uh, part of the group split off because they wanted to do photography and they essentially became Hackney Flashers, quite a well-known women's photography collective, was going on at the same time. There was a lot of material in, within the movement, women's movement to do a lot of different topics of posters on. We never really ran out of material from women's freedom and justice campaigns around the world, really. And so the, the thing with screen printing is you could do it in your front room, or if you didn't even have a front room, you could just you know, do it on the floor with a screen and some paper. So it really lent itself to the kind of pick up and walk type thing. 
I mean, offset litho presses were were huge, and litho was used a lot for fine art as well as for not so fine art. Um, but um, some of the other collectives, particularly that we were very fond of, was Lenthal Women's Lenthal Road Women's Workshop. Um, they were like us, a, a poster making collective in North London, um, in Hackney, pretty much, I think. But um, they did screen printing um, and also had uh, apprentices like we did, or people coming to join and people leaving over time. I know Anne, who was a very um, strong figure in our group, as soon as she'd finished at art school in Glasgow, she wrote us a letter and asked if she could join the collective and then turned up in London from Glasgow. And she's been here ever since, basically. There was also the poster film collective. They weren't just uh, women's movement. They did all kinds of topics and they were a mixed gender group as well. So they did some themed stuff as well on education and um, legislation and that kind of thing. And then there was a project called Some Girls, which was a poster project as well. In a way, it'd be hard to list them properly because there'd always be another one somewhere. Or you'd find there was one in Bristol when you went to visit somebody there, that kind of thing. It was very much in your own little backyard. You could do your things, but then get them out there. If you were still working together now as C-Red, what form do you think your work would take? We probably wouldn't be making silkscreen print posters. We would probably have been doing something, um, which I would never probably understand, but something online, something digital, because that now is the immediate, the immediate medium. That was Susie Mackey of Sea Red Women's Workshop talking to me about their poster, Right on Jane. If you'd like to find out more about Sea Red Women's Workshop, you can go to their website at searedwomensworkshop.wordpress.com. In the next episode, I'll be meeting Matilda from The Poster Project, Conversations from Calais. In the meantime, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Graphic Interventions, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you're listening. Graphic Interventions is made by Harriet Atkinson and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. 